Mass customization is the process of making customized, personalized products that are accessible to individuals and small businesses. The process involves manufacturing, assembly lines, supply chains, and software at every step along the way. Today's guests are Jim and Martin, who work on infrastructure and technology at Simpress, a mass customization platform. Simpress has t-shirt printers, warehousing machines, supply chain management tools, and lots of other computers that come together in the computer-integrated manufacturing process. The company has been around for a few decades, and more recently, Simpress has moved to microservices for many of the reasons that have been discussed in previous episodes of Software Engineering Daily. If you work at a big company with some monolithic characteristics, this episode might give you some good arguments and good strategies to bring to your manager or your superiors about why and how to move to microservices. Jim Sokoloff and Martin Winsven work on infrastructure and technology at Simpress, a mass customization platform. Jim and Martin, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Thanks. Let's start with a discussion of what Simpress does from a high level before we get into the technology side of things. So what is the business model of Simpress? So the business model for Simpress uh, as the parent company is that we have a multitude of different brands uh, spread across the globe that do mass customization. And with mass customization, you should really think in creating short runs of products that people want to customize. Uh, we're pretty well known here in the States for the brand Vistaprint, for instance. Uh, but we got many more brands throughout Europe and, uh, and Asia and South America also. Um, what you really see is that you know, traditionally, years back, it was very expensive to get, uh, you know, even business cards, but all kinds of other products customized to your specific needs. And our brands really excel at, you know, giving that that experience basically to uh, to our customers to customize their products. So, what would be some examples of different types of products that you make and customize? Um, so you got a lot of the in the business uh, for uh, for the small business companies. So that is like you know indeed a lawn sign, uh, uh, um, business cards, um, um, flyers, uh, uh, but also uh, letterheads and these kind of things. And another, for instance, another brand that focuses on also on consumer products like photo albums or canvas or acrylics on that you can put on the wall. Uh, uh, we also got brands that even focus much more on apparel, t-shirts, embroidery, on uh, baseball caps and these kind of things. So let's say I'm a nonprofit and I want to make 20,000 t-shirts or 20,000 business cards or, or, or 10,000 uh, flyers, 5,000 lawn signs. Give me a description of the workflow from the customer's point of view and what happens when that order hits Simpress's servers. Sure. So, uh, so you would work through one of our merchant, you know, one, of, one of our go-to-market merchants. Uh, so Vistaprint would be a, a typical example that sells most of the products you just described. And by the way, those numbers would be very long runs compared to what we would normally do. You know, you know business cards start at 250, <laughs> lawn signs start at one. Um, and so 5,000 lawn signs, I mean, that's a lot, that's a lot of lawn signs, a lot of lawn to cover. Um, so the typical <laughs> workflow is, uh, you know, you would either have a logo or you would have, uh, have, we have the, also the ability to design your logo for you. Kind of, we cooperate with you and give you a few to pick from. You know, I like, I like number one and three, kind of see more like that and we kind of have an iterative design process to get to your your logo or obviously if you come with any kind of graphic arts uh, assets or graphic artist um, ability we'll also take this kind of full bleed pre-designed products but Vistaprint in particular is known for having a very easy online design experience Um, and so there's a lot of software we um, that we run on uh, your web top or in some cases on your phone but for the most part on a desktop web server or a desktop web browser that allow you to design the lawn sign and, and kind of reuse those same assets so that your, your logo would look consistent across your letterhead, your envelopes, your business cards, and your lawn sign to kind of allow you with relatively little graphic arts expertise and relatively little time and quite a little money to, uh, to get a, a professional looking experience across that, that range of products. So computer integrated manufacturing is an area where Simpress aspires to be the best in the world. And I think it's really interesting to always investigate the software engineering behind 
types of technology companies that are trying to do the best in the world at one specific thing or you know at, at least one specific thing. So what is computer integrated manufacturing and how are you aspiring to be the best in the world at it? Well, I mean, an interesting thing, for instance, which 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 I really love from a from a technical standpoint is that since those products are custom and we really need to display them quick also across different an array of other products with the logo that you just designed or optimized, uh, we display them on all different kinds of products. And for instance, one of our service uh, services that we uh, that we have is that we immediately um, uh, generate. Uh, that particular logo on a mug which is rounded around the mug's uh, surface or on a lawn sign with a certain aspect of light coming into it. And we have to do that in, in milliseconds to, to display that. And like uh, in our peak moments, we, we have literally billions and billions of calls hitting our services to generate these images on the fly instead of having these static images that you would normally use when you sell a static SKU, right? If you've got a fixed product that has an article number from some manufacturer, it's always the same product. We need to display it on the fly right there and then. And then in terms of, of terms of the actual manufacturing side of things, the computer integration and, and the scale that we have allows us to take uh, press equipment that was originally designed to make long runs of, let's say, cereal box outsides or Tylenol boxes um, where you would you know, set the job up and it would run for you know, many hours or, or even days. And what we've done is we've brought, brought that down to print depths of you know, 250 uh, in the case of offset or in the case of digital equipment, we can go down to a print depth of, of one, of, of a single unit. And in the offset case in particular, you're making one plate, one aluminum plate that has your design and it's a consumable. And so for a full color print, you're going to make four of these plates and there's a, an optimization problem to figure out what's the best way for us to send our flow of business cards to the press, keeping in mind when the customer has to get it, what the particulars of the print job are, is it full color front and full color back? You know, is it, which is called four colors over four colors. Uh, is it a four over one? So it's a full color front and a gray back. Uh, is it blank back? And look, kind of looking at the different substrate choices, the different color choices, and trying to figure out what the optimal way to send those print jobs um, to our to our shop floor, where the shop floor ideally, uh, and, and that we both own our factories as well as we work with some outsourced partners, um, ideally they just follow the instructions on their on their computer display to say what's the next job that we need to do, what's the finishing steps, you know, when is it due to the customer, when and backing off from that, when is it due to leave the, the loading dock. Oh well so maybe like like just not if not everybody knows how that works in the in the printing industry, what is an interesting to say is like you buy this this multi-million dollar piece of equipment and not like uh, your copier maybe at an office location that has like uh, different sizes of paper in it. You always print at the most optimum size that this machine is capable of. So we combine different customers, their graphical orders onto the optimum size that we can print in this paper, which we call ganging. And we just make sure that, you know, uh, we get that machine, uh, it's money worthwhile uh, coming out of it. And that is, I think, you know, uh, some graphical, uh, that it's, it's, it's a lot of graphical integration of how do you get all these uh, these images on the fly near uh, near real time into the, into these manufacturing locations. Hmm. So you've mentioned that there are all these different machines that are involved in the different types of products that you're manufacturing, and that these these machines were typically originally designed to make giant orders, so produce like you know I don't know five hundred plates or ten thousand plates or something, but you reoutfit them to produce one plate. So how much hacking is involved in in reformatting those machines so that they can just do these super small orders? So the um, the print industry. So I've been here 13 years, and and the print industry has, believe it or not, has evolved in that 13 years to actually <laughs> reflect to reflect um, some of the techniques that that Vistaprint and and some other uh, early pioneers um, did in fact create which is they have now uh, these offset presses that will do automatic plate loading. And so, you know, you can kind of cue the plates up and then rather than shut the machine down to change the plates where you change them one at a time, these plates are these aluminum sheets that are the same size as the paper. And, uh, and now there are kind of auto loading presses. And so there's, uh, there's a, a Drupa show is a, a big print industry show that's actually going on right now. It was, I was there last week and uh, some of those 
offset press manufacturers now have the changeover time down to, you know, sub five minutes. And in fact, one of them demoed one that was sub three minutes for this plate change. And so you're still using a consumable. It's still expensive. The plates, you know, they, they get recycled. The aluminum gets recycled, but it's a there's a, a photo resist technique that uh, means it's a consumable. And so it's still expensive to, you know, to change these over after only 250 or 500 sheets. Um, but that's uh, that's one example of, a, of you know a technique that kind of Vistaprint did early on um, that's now been kind of adopted by the offset press manufacturers. And another technique that mm. is interesting that also has that is, uh, for instance, on our embroidery, we got all these machines that basically uh, and, uh, sti do stitch patterns and embroider your logo on a T-shirt or, or a baseball cap. And uh, you know, those are interesting uh, uh, algorithms that you you know have to discover. How can we let the head of the needle tread as the minimum amount of distance actually to to get you know a, the most amount of uh, products through those machines? Do you have to write those algorithms, or is it the people who are creating those machines? So we write a lot of them. So there are, uh, if you buy an embroidery machine, um, they will. You know, it works out of the box, right? It's not; it doesn't require you to write um, your own software. But there's still an optimization that you can do to get a better-looking pattern. And so, what happens is a lot of the embroidery, um, a lot of embroidery shops will have automatic digitization, and then there'll be a lot of manual retouching to say, you know, that's not really going to look right. And I know from my own human experience that if I lay the stitches out this other way, you're going to get a better finished product. What we do is we try to automate some of those things for two reasons. One, to give our customers the best possible output, but two, so we can have the lowest possible cost. I mean, we, we certainly want, we, and we prioritize them in that order. It's important for our customers to get a good product, but a lot of times we can embed in a computer algorithm some of the expertise, not all of it, but some of the expertise that these, these humans develop over time with the way you know the fabric pulls very slightly. And so the, the fabric changes over time as you begin to lay the stitches down. And so that's uh, an example of kind of one of the, the you know, artistic feels uh, that happens um, rather than a pure algorithm question. Yep. And it exactly comes down to the fact that you know we make maybe one t-shirt with an embroidered logo. So like if you invest uh, you know, 30 minutes on a logo because somebody ordered 10,000 of these t-shirts with you or baseball caps or something, then that's not a lot of work, 30 minutes of touching up that particular right. graphical format. But for us, that is actually the key and the trick of our, of, our, of our business to make it still very affordable to do just one because we do this all uh, computer-based. Yeah, and what you what you see in the market is um, a lot of a lot of competitors to Simpress have what are called setup fees. So it's the fee that you that essentially is charged by the company essentially to cover this artistic work or the kind of the preparing either the camera ready or, or print ready or in this case stitch ready documents. Um, and the fact that we automate almost all of that means that I don't think we charge setup charge. I know we don't charge them on Vistaprint. We may have some that, that do charge setup charges with some other merchants, but it's yeah. it, it tends not to be the case. And again, the whole market is moving in this direction because you know, if we come into the market and say, look, there's no setup charges, that puts pressure on the other competition in the market and ultimately is better for the, the end consumer. You've mentioned several different types of software development that somebody could potentially have to do as a software engineer at Simpress. So there's the web front end type of positions. There's the embroidery algorithm type of position. I'm sure there's all kinds of ops software engineering that you have to do. And I'm curious about how specialties break down because at many of the software companies that I've done interviews with, people are like, oh, I'm a front end engineer. I work mainly with JavaScript. I work with this specific web framework or I'm a database engineer. I work specifically with this, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an expert in MySQL. But you're talking about some very different types of software domains. So when people come to work at Simpress, are they typically already trained in the type of computer engineering that 
takes place in a in a mass customization manufacturing platform like Simpress, or do they learn this stuff on the job? Oh, that's a great question, actually. And I would say that you know, uh, Jim, myself, and a couple of uh, of the leaders here, are, that is our sort of key thing that we're busy with. Um, so we've gone undergone like a, a major change in our organization about two years ago, where we really started thinking about uh, differently about how we build software and. Um, um, and so that comes actually from two angles. It's the basically how do we organize ourselves and the technical side of it. And if I first explain a little bit on how did we organize ourselves, I would say we took a little bit uh, of Amazon, Spotify's uh, culture movies out there and a little bit of the Netflix, you know, uh, uh, HR kind of a, a few of it and mixed it all together. So we really went sort of to the equivalent of the pizza teams as Amazon calls that small squad which is the Amazon name, uh, the Spotify name for a group, 10 people, no more, that are autonomous. So we literally went away with the large UI, uh, uh, UX department. We went away with the large QA, large uh, ops, and, 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 uh, uh, and we started mixing that much more together to smaller groups. Next to that, we completely are adopting microservices and we're, we're getting tremendous speed actually nowadays out of that to really start like, uh, putting all these proprietary techniques that we originally had and wrapping them around an API um, so that many of our front-facing uh, uh, business units, as we call them, so the merchants, as we, as we say, are, can actually, like Lego bricks, mix and match however they want to set up their front-end experience for their customer. And you know, that is really, really taking flight at the moment. And while we traditionally were very much a Microsoft house, so a lot of uh, uh, C-sharp, uh, we now see a large adoption also of Java, some uh, Ruby on Rails. There's like multiple, we're truly becoming a polygon at the moment. Uh, in terms of some of the specific skill sets that might be specific to mass customization, we tend, we do obviously hire some industrial engineers and some kind of process engineers, but for, on the software side, we tend not to hire uh, people with expertise in mass customization. Again, if, if you aspire to be the best, then from whom are you going to hire these people with, with better expertise than you have? But also, uh, most of the challenges that we have are common to other e-commerce companies that do some kind of fulfillment. So yes, uh, mass customization is different in some ways, in some important ways, but it's also the same in a lot of ways. Our, our web teams would look very similar to other uh, big e-commerce e properties. Um, we have some front-end specialists, we have some database specialists, but most of our engineers can work their way around JavaScript, around basic DOM operations. They write their own basic data access, and so we, we tend not to really compartmentalize into these specialist teams where, you know, I need 10% of 100 different people to get the job done, I would rather exactly. assign it to the squad of, of five, six, seven people, and then they'll pull in a specialist here or there if, if they need it. The microservices discussion is a, an interesting one that we've had many times on Software Engineering Daily. And it sounds like the one of the big advantages of microservices that you get at Simpress is you have all these systems that have somewhat proprietary uh, ways of doing things. They're, you know, it's not like the simple restful thing where you present it with some JSON and it's everything's hunky dory. It's more like it's a domain, very domain specific type of thing. And so, with microservices, you can write a layer around that that uni that is more uniform in nature. So that you know, if you've got a T-shirt printing machine that was made by some company that doesn't you know, think in terms of friendly APIs, you can make an API around that that is more amenable to having a, a company that thinks of itself in terms of services that are flexible and more interoperable. So uh, maybe you can tell me if that's true and to what extent it's true and uh, how you build microservices. I mean, how, how you know, who owns a service? Who, how, how does the service get architected? How do you make sure that these things are consistent and well-documented? Just tell me about that migration process. Sure. So, uh, so first of all, you're absolutely right. The print industry, despite the evolution, has not uh, adopted uh, RESTful JSON as the standard. Um, XML, if you're lucky, and uh, in other cases, some proprietary binary formats uh, rule the day. So uh, it is important and beneficial for us to wrap those, and so you can treat them a little bit as a little bit more like abstract boxes and you can kind of reason about them at a, at a high level, at, at a level where you know Martin and I might work. Um, and yet 
exposed to the merchants and exposed to other uh, people who are submitting orders to the platform uh, a fairly easy interface and an interface that they're accustomed to on the kind of e-commerce and, and internet standards side of things. So um, it's absolutely part of the value that we add is kind of bringing that that wrapping of uh, existing complicated um, proprietary formats into a fairly easy interface. In terms of who owns and who architects them, uh, Martin mentioned that we, we started about a year and a half, maybe two years ago, down a path of squad autonomy. And so our ultimate state, which we're not yet there, is that the squad owns the architecture decisions, the squad owns the operations, the squad owns the responsibility for, for scaling, for technical health, um, and, and essentially every other um, ability of, uh, of their system. Um, again, we're, we're in the, the midst of the migration. I think a lot of cases where we've had greenfield development, we've seen uh, very rapid progress, um, which kind of proves out the model. Um, but like many companies, and like many companies ought to, you know, we, we came from a monolithic software world. It's a very common starting point, and so we're still uh, disassembling that. And so those are, uh, are areas where there is still a little more of a traditional shared ownership model um, that we're migrating away from. We're chopping away on a daily basis on the monolith. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, tell me more about that. I mean, because th that is a complex problem that a lot of companies are dealing with. They are in some sort of monolithic structure, and I think it's Conway's law where, I, I don't remember what law it is, but where the, it's like the the way that the organization is structured reflects the technology, the way the technology is built and vice versa. So if you build microservices and it's reflected in the two pizza team organizational structure, or the squat structure, like you mentioned from Spotify, then you know that's that's harmonious, but you can't have a monolithic technology stack and a bunch of two pizza teams because they're you know the two pizza teams are going to have shared responsibilities, and that's just doesn't really work out in the way that you would want it to work. So tell me tell me more about that. Like, how are you making it work? The cultural shift. You can see that, but like we are completely smiling here because I think we started a presentation like two years ago when uh, once we once the uh, when we announced <laughs> the organization with Conway's law wide up on the screen saying this is our problem and we're going to fix it. So we're now a little bit two years further, and I think mo the, the more important lessons that we have learned is that don't only attack it from the technical side. Really, really take that Conway's law thing in the back of your mind um, when you start domain modeling. It's very important to really start thinking which pieces can we carve off, which things are unique enough to say, okay, we're going to you know, wrap an API around it. And let's be honest, in the beginning, they are not perfectly microservices, but at least they are a service. They're not doing any direct calls to any other database anymore, and they're isolated in itself. And also, which is a big mindset, I think, that helps with, uh, with making, making microservices and these APIs work, is to don't see them anymore as a project that you're doing. See that API as a product. So uh, one of the things that I'm saying here a lot in the organization, don't think projects, think products. Every squad is building their own um, API uh, into a product. And uh, once they start thinking about that and you make the right domain modeling, so how coarse-grained, fine-grained will you go with an, with an API, that really, really helps the uh, uh, speeding, speeding things along. And we see the squads themselves making more and more, so the teams, uh, more and more the right decisions now in, in carving off the, you know, the important stuff. Yeah, I think I just add that you also need the uh, executive understanding and executive sponsorship of this as well. Um, if you think about taking a, a monolithic or fairly monolithic code base that was doing a billion dollars of revenue a year, uh, nobody wants to be the first one to move off of it. And so no, you know, there's a, there's a, you can get this organizational lock where everyone has to go, but no one wants to be first. And if you don't have organizational and executive buy-in and understanding, you're going to you're going to run into some really sticky political and, and human problems that get alleviated if at least everybody, all the way up in our case to the CEO, knows that this is a critical strategy, a critical part of our technology strategy, and a critical part of our business strategy. And at some point, you know, uh, me, Martin, Marco, someone is going to come calling and say, listen, you've got to, you know, now's the time. The, the interfaces are ready. They've been well tested. Now's the time you're going to need to migrate off of the monolith that already works onto this new stack that we promise you already works, but you're not going to see any real benefit immediately. And, and that's a, a difficult thing without 
uh, executive understanding. Yeah, and and to and, and and sorry to add one more thing. Indeed, the C. Uh, good that you mentioned that the CEO's buy-in is super important, or at least the management group that um, to some end feels also. Uh, responsible towards the roadmap that you might have in an organization. If they don't give you the bandwidth to actually do this, basically there are still 50 projects standing back in line and they don't want to go to this product mindset of what you're building, it's going to be a very, very tough road to actually uh, you know, change the organization. At Amazon, I remember there is this perspective of your other teams are your customers like just like as as amazon if you're you know you, amazon is famous for the customer obsession thing um and, and when i was working there briefly there was really this impression where if you're on a team that is an a presents an api that is consumable by other teams you want to think of those teams as your customers and i think martin what you said about building your api like a product really fits into that same notion um, and what you guys were saying about getting this, uh, getting this kind of transition off the ground and the difficulties and how it's important to have management buy-in, um, you know, the, a couple strategies I've heard around starting this migration. One, you can, you know, you've got the monolith and you can start the, the, the migration, the cultural migration and the, and the platform migration to microservices by, if there's a greenfield project, then you can just say, hey, we're standing up this service and we're going to, this brand new service, and we're going to do it entirely in its own, with its own team, with its own thing. So you could do a greenfield, build the first microservice. And then when the other teams see you building that service and they're like, well, that worked. Now we feel comfortable migrating our pre-existing service. You can do that. And you can also do the thing where you've got the monolith and like what Netflix did, the first thing that they migrated off of the Netflix monolith they had was the jobs board. So, you know, if you want to get a job at Netflix, you know, you go to the jobs board and migrating this to its own service, you know, if there's a little downtime on the job board, it's not a big deal. It's something that's important, but if it goes down while you're, you know, changing the the airplane while it's in flight, it's not a big deal. So once that was successful and it was a low impact thing, it was easy to migrate. Um, it helped the other teams gradually migrate to Netflix microservices, which Netflix is now famous for. So there are all these different models for this type of migration. Um, so let's talk about supply chains. Totally different conversation, but I'm very curious about the supply chain. It's this thing that is um, you know, very opaque to most software engineers because it's not really related to software. And yet it is how hard goods get moved around the world. Um, so I guess the first thing I would ask, like, where does the manufacturing process end and the supply chain process begin? Um, I would say, well, there's probably, there probably is an industry definition, but, you know, I think what we would, would look at, uh, if you think about the, uh, talking only about the fulfillment aspect of our business. If you think about it from the, the left-hand side where we're sourcing uh, raw materials, we're sourcing ink, we're sourcing substrate, we're sourcing plates, all the way to the, the right-hand side, which is a customer is satisfied with the product that they've received. Um, you know, there's, there's an initial inbound supply chain of all the procurement of, of goods and materials. Um, paper uh, is, as you can imagine, very heavy. And so there's a local market for paper. Even at the market that we, even at the size that Simpress is at, we are still buying from distributors. We're not buying directly from uh, paper mills, and so there's a, a whole business and, and uh, hierarchy of, of supply there. Um, there are more ink manufacturers in the world than you would probably uh, imagine, and so again, we have to qualify the the inks that we use in, in different areas. Um, there's color profiling. Each each paper has a characteristic, you know, brightness level and whiteness level, and, and yet we want to present a consistent output to the customer. And so we use different color profiles on the presses depending on the paper that we're using. And so there's a lot of interplay between the supply chain side and the manufacturing side. Manufacturer has to change a color profile when supply chain changes the paper. And so there's there's a, a little bit of an interplay there. Um, you're going to get to this big middle space, which is the actual manufacturing, the, the printing, cutting, packing, you know, 
grommeting, gluing, folding uh, side of manufacturing, or in the case of apparel, um, you know, our direct garment or embroidery uh, processes that we put um, put um, decorations onto those soft goods. Um, you know, into packing uh, consolidation. So if you order you know, a mug and a pack of business cards. It might be nice for you, but it's certainly nice for us if those get shipped to you in the same box because we save money. You have you have less packages to open. There's less environmental impact from from packing material waste, and then you know there's an outbound supply chain side as well, which is the outbound you know logistics. Whether we're using a, a line haul network or using a, a, a parcel carrier to get that product uh, to you. And so people who are listening to this, they're like, okay, this doesn't sound like software engineering. Why am I, why is he talking about supply chain? I don't care about this. Uh, but what I think about it is like the interesting software problems here are, you know, at least one interesting software problem. Like when I order a pizza, for example, when I order a pizza from Domino's, they have this piece of software that tells me how my pizza is advancing through the pizza preparation process. Like I place an order online and then I can go to the portal and I see how the pizza is like, it's all right, it's in the oven or the cheese is being applied or, oh, it's out of the oven and we're giving it to the driver and the driver's 10 minutes away. And, you know, I think about this sometimes and I'm like, how do they orchestrate all that? Like how much software do they have at the pizza place? Uh, and, you know, what Simpress is doing is that on a titanic scale where, You've got an order for three yard signs and it's got to go through, you know, first it propagates through the ordering system and it gets paid for and then it hits the assembly line and then it gets made and then it gets put on a shipping container at some point. And so what I'm curious about is how you track that order through the supply chain or through the manufacturing process and then through the supply chain and how much visibility you have into that and if you're trying to work on getting more visibility. So, um, so first of all, I think the Domino's app is, is an interesting kind of funny example. I suspect it's a little bit BS. There's a yes. little bit of kind of made up. Uh, yeah, they have some checkpoints and they kind of, I suspect, interpolate some of the positions. And apologies to Domino's if that's not actually the case. The next, the, the next thing you're going to tell me is that Santa Claus doesn't exist. Well, that's for you to decide. Um, I think, uh, you know, I think what we are always looking to do is give more transparency to our customers and, and have them understand better where uh, where the different steps in the manufacturing process are or kind of when, at least when they should expect their order, particularly if we're not going to meet their original expectation or their original desire. Um, in terms of tracking the orders and kind of making sure that every uh, manufacturing step uh, is is done and done in the correct order, and then everything kind of meets at the end of the line. In the case of photo books that Martin mentioned earlier, you know the the book cover is manufactured kind of differently and separately from the book inner pages, and obviously those have to meet at the end in the book binding process to to make it all work. And so there is uh, kind of an ordering and, and scheduling uh, process that we have to go through there. Um, you know, and, and in terms of other products where you just want to make sure that, you know, that, 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 that mug and that pack of business cards get to the line at the same, to the, to the binning area, we call it, where we're consolidating the packages, um, at around the same time, you know, there's, there's, uh, it's a scheduling problem. And so I said earlier that we had a lot of kind of very common roles and, and we also have some specialist roles. You know, we, we have some PhDs on staff. We have some PhDs in computer science or mathematics who are working on some of these algorithms, and then we have a software team that will actually, you know, implement the, the planning algorithm and, and we evolve it over time. There's no way to get brilliant at this right out of the start. You know, you have to, you know, have to start making money. And, and so, you know, we have 15 years of accumulated experience um, doing it, but it's, it's, um, it is a lot of work. And, and if Domino's was actually having somebody, you know, put, some, put a piece of cheese on and then press a button and then put some mushrooms on and then press <laughs> a different button, you know, you're going to slow down the, the, in that case, the pizza manufacturing process. Or they can put sensors in all of the cheese. Yeah. <laughs> or they do image recognition. That must be cheese. I'm going to tell cheese right now. It's like, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but one of the things, the amount of data points that we actually have in all of these facilities is immense. They're, uh, and they're all kinds of different techniques from a simple barcode scanner when, uh, you know, pellet arrives here to individual orders with uh, that go over uh, over carousel trackings that get laser scanned and while they while they pop by um, uh, fully automated. And these are all data points that feed into the big yeah our big data <laughs> quote unquote that we uh, analyze and make sure that we get the most efficient uh, output. And we need to because most of those orders, millions and millions of orders in some of those factories that go through, 
are just a single item that right. goes for to a single customer. So we can mix those up. Right. And almost we, we sell almost nothing from stock. So when when you place an order, we have a manufacturing or customization decoration process that we have to do before we ship that package out. Um, Amazon certainly has a scale that we probably can't even comprehend in their distribution centers, um, but they're mostly shipping packages or shipping objects from stock, which is a slightly different problem than, than the customization problem that, uh, that we bring to market. There's a lot of conversation around Internet of Things these days, and I, I, I mean, Simpress sounds like the type of company that would need to be on the cutting edge of that or... Maybe Internet of Things sounds like complete buzzword to you, and you guys, you know, it's like you've got you've been connected for much longer, and it's like, oh, we don't care about Internet of Things, or I don't know. Maybe you could tell me more about what that term means to you, because I did a show recently about Internet of Things, and it was like very much about these industrial scenarios where, because right now at least, like that, because that's a highly controlled scenario, and you've got all these like high impact systems where you would really want to outfit them with sensors or communication things or gateways. And so, I don't know, maybe you could tell me more about, uh, you know, what you think of that term internet of things and how it applies to you. Sure. So, uh, so Martin and I are both personally gadget freaks. And so we, we <laughs> definitely have some, uh, internet of things, things, uh, many of which don't work very well. Um, in terms of, of what we do for, for tracking, a lot of our tracking is, um, believe it or not, some of our tracking is still these kind of paper equivalent of license plates that, that go along with the job and, and say what steps have to be applied. That's the lowest tech, you know, and certainly least internet-y of things uh, that I can imagine. Um, we do use a lot of barcode scanners, as, as Martin mentioned, and that feeds into our, our system that kind of steers work around. We have uh, some select areas where we use RFID, um, but RFID has, uh, has some challenges on the shop floor as well. Um, for tracking individual packages, RFID is essentially no faster and, and certainly much more expensive than a barcode. Um, for tracking, you know, equipment and kind of uh, these boxes that we ship around our conveyor belts, there's an area where it would be more affordable because they kind of get recycled over and over. Um, but again, that's that just feeds into our, our tracking side of things, um, and it's you know all within the context of our factory. When we talk about tracking outside. Um, we, in a lot of cases, we end up, sh we, we don't have factories in every single country in the world. And so we have border crossings, border crossings come with paperwork. Um, and the, that paperwork, we sometimes use, um, other tracking techniques to, if customs wants to inspect and wants to say like, oh, I need to see that particular box of a hundred mugs and our truck is held up, you know, all those orders are held up until we can satisfy the customs inspector that we've, we've, you know, actually shipped you know, mugs in that box instead of whatever they think we might be shipping um, or for whatever other reason they want to inspect it. And so those are other areas where we want to be able to kind of have live tracking information or at least have, have orders be much more findable, um, even in aggregate on the truck. But then again, most of our products, when they really reach the, the hands of the end consumer, don't have any of the, you know, you know, we're talking about a barrel and paper and paper, of course, is pretty flat. So it's hard to be like... Put, uh, uh, put, put something like an RFID uh, correctly in it. And there is less need for us on those particular things, but a lot of for us, it's much more the tracking inside of uh, manufacturing and in the shipping process. Hmm. So these cloud providers like Azure and Google and Amazon are talking a lot about IoT. They talk about their cloud platform for IoT and it's finally becoming a reality, or so they want us to believe. Um, is that the case? Or I mean, you guys mentioned you're both gadget freaks. You know, you, you're probably you probably got your finger on the pulse of like, you know, how this is actually progressing. And I mean, what you said, you've got a bunch of IoT devices that don't work very well. They probably don't work together very well. Um, you know, this is what you hear from the early, even the early adopters, and yet you're starting to hear a very different message from these big cloud providers. So I'm trying to parse out what is the reality? I mean, like, like by the way, not, so Jim is much more the experimental that goes hardcore, you know, getting the individual components themselves and try, tries to build something. I'm more of the that I just buy an Alexa and some U lights and just hook it all up in my house and still find that amazing every time I come home. Um, I mean, I mean, from a cloud perspective and in, uh, you know 
I th- we are heavily using AWS. Uh, uh, it's a very important uh, partner for us uh, to build these things in. But then when we go to the to the Internet of Things, I think you see it already coming in in your daily life, right? Your my electricity uh, uh, bill automatically registered up with an Internet of Things things inside of my utility closet, and you know so that they know where the uh, uh, what the bill is going to be, uh, and I can uh, monitor that uh, online. So you see that everywhere coming. But from a daily life perspective it's much more in the gadget realm I think than actually um, 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 everywhere around you uh, from from your house perspective yeah I think I think when you look at what the different cloud providers are doing and the way that they're evolving you know it's no surprise that they started with kind of very basic things they started with storage they started with queuing they started with compute and now if you think about them expanding that sphere of what what's available um, Amazon and, and certainly uh, the other major providers are developing these kind of higher, I guess, higher level services that are more targeted and kind of better, better use case suited. Uh, you take Lambda as an example. If you if you don't want to run a, a compute server all day long, but you want to be able to respond with reasonable latency to some inquiry, uh, you know, Lambda is a, a great solution. And Amazon stumbled, you know. Stumbled across is probably the wrong, uh, a little bit too pejorative of the word, but you know they kind of came across that as they started to see where people were going and, and what they were asking for from EC2 or from SQS and other services, and it's no it's no surprise to me that as they've really built out, and again, Google and, and Microsoft also have very good offerings, they've built out really good offerings at that kind of base foundational level. Yep. It's no surprise that they're going higher up the value stack, and if I was starting an Internet of Things company now, you know, there's no way I would start with, you know, let me get a Kubernetes or, or a, a EC2 instance and then start to build things <laughs> up from scratch. I would start by looking at, you know, what Intel has and what Amazon has and Microsoft and what they have that are, are targeted exactly towards my use case. Yep. Because ultimately, what you can do with software engineers, you know, if you don't have to build all of that undifferentiated heavy lifting, that's, that's an Amazon phrase, but I'm sure others are, are using it. You know, if you don't have to go slog through all of that and you can focus on what's really essential to your business you can develop a lot more with a lot less investment. So Simpress has been online for a much longer time than AWS has been around. What Can you tell me about that migration process? Like, How did you guys get on with the AWS? Like, When did you start using it? Why did you start using it? What, serv- what APIs do you use? Do you feel locked into it? Tell me about your AWS experience. So um, I'll, I'll kind of answer from the Vistaprint or Simpress side, and then Martin has a, actually a different and, and more interesting answer in some ways from the album printer side where, where he came from. So you're right. We started long before. So we, we ran in the traditional data center. You know, we got our, bought our own load, load balancers and servers and storage and SANs. And, you know, and we made uh, EMC and, and HP and Cisco quite a bit of money over the years as we had to upgrade those on a constant basis. And for a while, I ran the tech ops team that did an excellent job of, of keeping those servers and, and services up and running, but at a fairly high uh, cost. And we, you know, we were doing the same thing that a hundred other e-commerce companies were also doing, and so we had a lot of, of people um, essentially doing the same work as was already going on in, in, in some other industry or in, in some other company. Um, and so from that side, you know, I'll say we joined the uh, AWS bandwagon after Martin came in and uh, and gave us some of the enlightenment. So I'll, I'll let him answer. <laughs> well, you know, so so actually, in the, when S3 just barely land, launched, and I have to remember, it was 2008 or something, or something. 2006 or seven. Yeah. So so uh, I was actually I'm Dutch, and I was originally at a at a startup in uh, uh, based from uh, from Amsterdam, which is now. Uh, been acquired by uh, by Simpress uh, in 2011, and at that time we, uh, we we basically built all the photo book software, and we had literally millions of customers coming in with photo books, and those are pretty heavy in data, but in uh, the amount of uh, storage that we needed. So I was basically at that time just sitting, getting slashed by you know offers in NetApp and Dell Sons and EMCs, and it was costing me a lot, a lot of money. Um, and at that particular time, um, 
um, uh, while I was basically sitting there thinking, ooh, our little startup can't really afford <laughs> these massive investments in storage, uh, I read this article basically that, you know, this thing from Amazon S3 and, and just blew my mind. Like, wow, I can pay by the hour for a gigabyte or something that I can stick there. And I just changed the entire development course saying, this is our top priority because with that money, I could hire more developers over there and keep, keep building it. Mm-hmm. And that was like really, really early. So at that time, you still st- sat in a terminal screen doing your commands from a from a prompt getting uh, um, uh, getting our all of our uploads actually uploaded to to the states because they didn't have availability zones or data centers in Europe uh, again and that went really really well immediately we started uploading there and I and I saved all that money plus then also we had a fire at one of our factory locations which was a nightmare where we had a little bit of a data center and still some of the stuff going on and then we went all in on uh, on all of the storage and some of our computing power on uh, on these things so that was for a very early experience with this is great and once we got uh, that company got acquired and I joined here with the leadership group uh, we also went all in here you did a total migration well at some of her so so it's not a total migration and every different spot so like we are more and more which I personally very much love uh, getting decentralized on different business unit backend. So yes, it's a total migration from a storage perspective for this particular business unit and their data. But on some other places, it's not the case. But the majority of our, I would say we're well over 50% with uh, some of the uh, of the storage and the uploads that are actually going directly into AWS, which of course are our own middleware on top of that. Yeah, and if you if you think about the the kind of fundamental premise of cloud computing, you know, if you need a server for 8,760 hours, if you need it for a whole year, it's certainly cheaper to buy your own your own server. But if you need it for 20 of those hours or you need it for a few hundred of those hours, that's where the cloud economics kind of starts switching out of the direction. So um, one of the things we would do every every February, we're a very seasonal uh, business, or, you know, all of the kind of holiday pictures and holiday calendars and photo books present a load um, on our systems that kind of spikes in the, let's say, November 25th through you know, January 15th timeframe. And so then in February, we would start planning for the following holiday peak, because if you own your own servers and you own your own SANs and you own your own everything, you have to make sure that you don't turn those orders away. A, you have dissatisfied customers. B, you've done all the marketing costs to acquire them and you didn't get any revenue from it. Um, and so you know, both of those factors conspire uh, against ever wanting to turn away an order. What we found as we got farther down the migration path, we migrated uploads, uh, our, our own upload system uh, for Simpress uh, a little bit later than Album Printer did, obviously. And what we found was that meant we could get out of the business of doing what we called holiday capacity planning. Because, you know, yes, you get a higher bill if the upload volume is, is larger than you expected. But again, that just becomes a business problem. If you're making money on every upload, you'd like that bill to be as high as you can. Yeah, very interesting. So you, you know, you mentioned Kubernetes a while ago, and um, you know, it, I think it's interesting because a, a conversation I like to have uh, on this show is like, what is the future of these different cloud providers? You know, because Kubernetes presents this like huge potential shift to how we build infrastructure, and I mean, same thing with you know just Docker more generally. But then there's also like you know, Google's got got a great cloud machine learning offering that's that's drumming up with TensorFlow and so what what I'm, one thing I'm curious about is like as these services get more differentiated as Google builds up a platform that is rivaling and is disjoint from uh, from AWS do you think you'll be moving to like a hybrid cloud model or like multi-cloud model I guess yeah, I think there's there's certainly nothing that would prevent us from doing that. And and what I don't want to do, you know, I ran ops for many years, and, and what I always hated was being locked into an individual vendor. And again, I'm very happy with Amazon, but we don't want to be locked into Amazon, you know, either. It's it's just a bad, um, a bad business decision. All else being equal, well, unfortunately, all else is not equal. So you know, we are certainly uh, right now fairly locked in with Amazon. Um, in terms of understanding like where the disjoint uh, development is coming in in the, the marketplace, one of the benefits of having squad autonomy is that if, a, if we're doing a, if we have a squad that has a machine learning problem and they believe that that Google solution is better than Amazon's or that Google solution is the only one that will fit for their their use case, they're certainly able and, and you know we, we would 
encourage them to use whatever the best solution is. What we do know, though, is um, a lot of what we do can run on any of the cloud providers. And in that case, you don't want people making arbitrary decisions like, oh, I like Google better or, you know, I like, I'm a Microsoft fan, so I want to be on Azure when, you know, there's certainly some economy in terms of uh, enterprise support and, and kind of enterprise understanding to have most of your eggs in, in one provider. And so for us, that one provider right now is Amazon. Yeah. And one thing on top of that is also always make sure that, and we say that a lot to our teams, that you, that they should think about the services that they actually pick from the cloud. When, when you go for an S3 or like an EC2, that is, you know, there's a solution almost at any other cloud provider to start using that. But if you go hardcore in the Redshift and the Lambda things, there's a lot more lock-in over there with that particular provider. Now, for now, I'm totally okay with Amazon. But what in a decade, right? Or these kind of things. And then again, does that really matter a decade? I don't know, but it is something we think about sometimes. Like, which products do you choose and which ones are... You know, much more commoditized. Yeah, yeah make, make sure yeah. the lock-in is worth it. Yes. <laughs> so we're kind of up against time, and this is a super interesting conversation, but um, I want to, guess, begin to wrap it up with, you know, a question about the future. I mean, what is in the future for Simpress? I, I can imagine that the nature of a manufacturing and supply chain and mass customization business is rapidly changing. I think about the potential of robotics, um, maybe increased cloud computing potential, decreased cost of sensors, increased potential of IoT. What do you think is in the future and where are you placing your bets? Well, we're actually doing a major bet at the moment, which is much more in, like we're, we're already calling it a platform, but I would say you're not ru- truly a platform when you haven't opened it up fully yet. And um, um, we're basically, all our proprietary techniques, all the stuff that really makes us beat, we're building APIs out of that. And we're actually indeed exposing them as a product to other teams. But we're really gearing up for something that we call Simpress Open, uh, which is uh, a very beta at the moment. But if you Google it, you can already find it at the moment, um, where we're actually gonna expose our APIs. So other people can, start a small fulfillment factory or especially you can also say um, here are different merchants um, uh, 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 the different if you basically want to sell t-shirts in the future or you already got something where you're selling a certain amount of products you can hook yourself up to the platform and basically become one of our uh, you know customer facing front ends even though you're not you know fully owned by the simpress family so that is something that is uh, what we're gearing up towards a lot now, which of course comes with a whole lot more of, you know, how are we going to harden our APIs even further and going to make sure that we are actually um, uh, can go there on the wild, wild internet with some of our techniques. Well, that's great because it'll tighten up the internal APIs as well. So, you know, as per everything we've discussed so far. Um, okay, well, Jim and Martin, uh Thank you so much for making time uh, for this interview and talking about Simpress and your technology stack. This is a really interesting conversation. I'm really happy to have had you guys on. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks, Jeff.